0: Listening to Love Stories with me, Dolly Alderton. A series in which I talk to guests about their most defining relationships, the passion, heartbreak, longing, familiarity, and fondness that has formed who they are. My guest this week is the author and journalist Ruby Tando. Ruby first rose to fame in 2013 as a much-loved contestant on the Great British Bake-off when she was just 21. But her following writing and work has eclipsed towers of spun sugar and soggy bottom puns in a tent. She has written a Guardian column, co-founded a zine about mental health called Do What You Want and penned two cookbooks. Her newly published book Eat Up, Food, Appetite and Eating What You Want is a joyful celebration of food of all kinds drawing on science, literature, movies and her own relationships, struggles and experiences. It describes eating an appetite without needless reverence, without pretension, and most crucially, without shame. Their own, perhaps, less spelt out.
1: Yeah, I think one thing that I was really keen to do was to not talk at all about, um, you know, guilty pleasures... Not mentioning whether something's calorie, light or anything like that. And that really shouldn't be radical. But it turns out that every single cookbook has a reference to fatness, has a reference to, I don't know, has a reference to things like your weight and whether something is indulgent. And I don't know, the whole thing is just messed up. Wicked. What's that River Cafe, that famous chocolate nemesis? Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> yeah, apparently doesn't work, the recipe. That's oh, well really? Heard. Yeah.
0: Oh, I love that cookbook. That crabling greenies is my absolute favourite. Oh, lovely. They put fennel
1: seeds in. Really yummy. I would get on board with that.
0: <laughs> I loved Eat Up. It's an ode to food and appetite on the widest imaginable spectrum. So it's not just about the spectrum of emotions, it encompasses and celebrates cheap food, corner shop food, luxurious food, kitchen cupboard food, fresh food, fast food and seasonal food and many, many more incarnations of food it's about the first cold sip of ginger beer in the morning when you need it most i love that section it's just a chapter mm. on how to kind of the secret refreshing drink to pep you <laughs> up and it turns out just to be an ice cold can of pop yeah it's about god this bit resonated with me it's about the over ambitious cake that you make for someone you love for a friend, a birthday cake and then kind of scold and flagellate yourself when it goes all wrong and you kind of Everyone feels embarrassed about it anyway. Oh my God, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. It's about ordering Just Eat 30 quid curry when you've got a terrible, terrible cold. It kind of, it's, as I said, it covers the whole spectrum in a really joyful way. What
1: inspired you to write the book? I mean, basically, the world is falling apart. And because the world is falling apart, I think everyone is feeling... They're just clawing at anything that can give them some semblance of control over their life again. Mm. And obviously a really good means to exercise control is food. Mm. And so there's a lot of anxiety, like maybe I can stave off death a few more days by eating, you know, all green foods or whatever. There's a a big sense of that at the moment. And I just wanted to push back against that. I wanted to get rid of a bit of the snobbery, a bit of the anxiety a lot of the moralising that surrounds food and just encourage people to have a a good relationship with it, whatever that looks like for them. And also something
0: that I found as I read it is that often you find people who say on the surface that this is their mission, but actually what they're pushing is more of a kind of conscious balance which is fine Mm. that that makes sense but it's still very much about you need to have this and then you must have that whereas this is like the least judgmental book about food i've ever read where you're saying it's absolutely fine if you want to eat cornflakes and kfc every day probably won't feel great but you do what you want do what you do what your body craves
1: yeah and i do you know what there are so many books out there with advice about how to eat healthy uh, well allegedly healthy or have a so called balanced diet I am not that person Mm. and I think it was really important for me that I just had a pure non-judgmental stance and just encourage people to eat what they want and if they want to know like how to eat in a way that will bolster their immune system for instance there's a million places they can turn to for that but I'm not that place I'm the one place fingers crossed they can come to and they can read the book and just feel relaxed and excited about foods. Would well, you know what it's working because I thought that I was
0: someone who I've written about it in my book. I am someone who suffered from disordered eating in the past and I feel like it's something I really have a kind of rational and compassionate handle on now when it comes to myself with appetite mm-hmm. and eating. But I didn't realize that I definitely when I was reading your book, I definitely am someone who attaches shame to certain foods. Today, I was on my way here, I was so tired, I was working late last night and I was up early working this morning and I realised I hadn't eaten breakfast and I went into the corner shop and I was like, oh I should probably just get an apple and some water and then I saw this chocolate bar which is like such a rank cheap chocolate company, right? called Ritter Sport, do you know them? It's only in like the skankiest corner shops, so I've saved half for you because I've just discovered it and it's my favourite thing, it's honey, salt and almond chocolate. Oh wow! And then I was just like, "No, I can have that for breakfast." Of I'm a grown ass woman, and yes. it's like, <laughs> "What my body's craving? I want a bit of sugar. I'm yeah. naked." Anyway, so that's for you. Oh, cheers! <laughs> I'll enjoy that. <laughs> Thank you. So it's like really a book, I think, that will make people wake up, maybe, to those unconscious shames—the shame that they have.
1: Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I think. I mean, there's the health side of things that makes people feel ashamed. And then there's also the fact that food has such incredible symbolic weight with yeah. us. You know, foods stand for different things and I mean, for example, a steak, this is a really cliched example, but unfortunately it still prevails. A steak is like a manly thing, for example, and it's not very ladylike to get a massive, great big hunk of meat. Yeah. Unless you're like Mia Farrow and Rosemary's baby, which is terrifying <laughs> in itself. So um, no wonder we're so confused because you see a piece of food that you might want and you're like, OK, but what does that mean? In the back of your mind, you're like, what does that mean? What does it say about me? Yeah. And also
0: something that you write about so well is how you're speaking from a place of slight privilege in that you're a kind of slim woman yeah, and how it is so much easier for a woman to have a chocolate bar for breakfast or maybe order a steak mm-hmm. if she's not deemed as overweight and hideous in society's very narrow view yeah. of of bodies and how 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 that takes on its own semiotics completely
1: it, yeah i mean it is so disgusting the way that we treat people who are bigger than what is deemed to be acceptable yeah. it is I don't know it's terrible and that was one thing that I was very nervous about when I was writing the book because I I have a huge amount of privilege in being able to say this stuff because if I say oh I had a burger for breakfast people aren't gonna you know they might judge me in a way but I will receive nowhere near the level of abuse that a fat woman would receive yeah so I was very um, nervous to make sure that I did justice to this like tricky issue and things that I don't really have any authority on which is why I kind of outsourced and I consulted um, my friend Bethany and I talked to some different people who actually have experience of being fat and I asked them their opinions and put them in the book. And something that you touched on just earlier
0: again is something that you write about so well in the book is how food expresses identity Mm. And, and also you talk about how food literally makes up who we are, there's this beautiful bit where, please give me because I'm paraphrasing here, that I've never heard it phrased quite like this, where you said that when you ingest food, it's where the kind of wide and seemingly endless world intersects with your inner
1: mm. life.
0: So you're ingesting the world. And you know, of course, that makes up a part of who you are. And obviously, that's amazing that that can do that but it also wearing food as identity
1: you talk about how that
0: can be dangerous
1: yeah yeah i mean mean, this is something that fascinates me so much the idea of taking in the world Mm. because we love to think of ourselves as like bounded little creatures don't we here's where the world ends and i begin i know Mm. exactly what i am and what i'm made up of but every time you eat something you're taking it all inside you that's amazing i think it's fantastic But also there's a sense in which if you think too much about what am I, you know, follow this, you are what you eat, logic, you end up pursuing these absolutely bonkers ideas about what it is to eat and what that makes you. There was this amazing uh, study that I cited in the book. It's an old one. And people were asked, what do you think these people are like? And they were given two descriptions. One group of people ate uh turtles i think and the other group of people ate uh i think boar mm. and people were like yeah i guess the boar people probably were quite sturdy and aggressive and the turtle people were probably like good at swimming
0: <laughs> no way people really
1: believe it and we, we have these kinds of um assumptions based on food it's incredible you also talk about when you're you admit
0: to the fact that when you're in Sainsbury's, you know, we all do that thing. I love doing it where you snoop into someone's trolley or you pick up a receipt on the floor and you see what the person's bought. And <laughs> That's kind a of, level
1: up. <laughs> oh, I love
0: doing that. I kind of um, try and piece together who that person is or yeah. where they're going. Something that you say is that you very consciously will put like the fresh fish and the herbs on top. And I think that can be quite dangerous as well with, with the kind of what's in your fridge interviews yeah or the or the day in the life sort of interviews i definitely have absorbed habits as i've got older because people that i deem to be successful or sexy or intelligent or cool Mm. are eating certain things yeah and and again a thread throughout the book is that that all that does is dismiss the relationship with
1: your appetite because you're not listening to yourself yeah yeah, I mean, the amount of times as a teenager I'd open a Cosmopolitan or whatever it was I was reading at the time and I'd see a, a day in the life feature and it always said that whoever it was, they'd always start with hot water with lemon. lemon. yeah. Oh God, it was rank. It's a dreadful way to start the day and I used to try it again and again and again. <laughs> I went back to it and every time I was so hungry and my body was screaming out for food yeah, yeah. and I was just like, no, my body must be wrong. I'm sure that like... Britney Spears is right, you know? Yeah. Do you know the saddest thing I ever heard? I know it, it's cruel to laugh about it, but it's just so funny. A friend had tweeted that she had been in Pratt and she was browsing, seeing what sandwich she'd pick up. And this woman came in and she stood beside her and she was looking at the shelves and she picked up one of those spinach and egg pots. You know the ones that's oh, yeah. literally an egg yeah, and a few leaves yeah, of spinach? Yeah. This woman picked up the egg pot and she was like, perfect. She said it to herself. She said perfect to herself and held it to her chest and went to pay. Isn't that the saddest Mm. thing you've ever heard in your life? I mean, maybe she loves just plain hard-boiled eggs
0: and three leaves of spinach. I just don't believe that there's an appetite alive. No, (laughs) Like
1: for her sake, I I really hope that that's what she loves. But I suspect that she was told by someone somewhere that... Best to have some good protein for lunch. Don't have too many carbs. Oh, green stuff is good for you. Also, the telling word there is perfect, isn't it? Yeah. Because it's the pursuit for
0: perfectionism rather than something messy and delicious or, you know...
1: I don't want to make it sound like you can never have... Obviously, sometimes you just want a salad. Like there have been times when I've drifted through my life in like a sluggy way and I've been eating loads of li- really heavy foods for ages and, and then you fancy a vegetable and you're like, yeah. what is this feeling that's come yeah. over me? So like, obviously, sometimes you want healthy stuff, but for so many people, it is this relentless pursuit of this idea of perfect health and... Yeah,
0: And as you say as well, this is something I've really learned over the years, is that if you do regime after regime and you do endless cycles of discipline Mm -hmm. and a phrase that you use in the book is an endless cycle of annual new year, new me, Mm -hmm. year after year after year after year, is that what happens is you become totally confused and disconnected. So something that I found is when I finally was ready to go back to you know engaging with with what my body wanted and being healthy and being moderate i just couldn't listen to it i couldn't hear it had gone that connection initially had gone and i had you know you forget what hunger and say and being satisfied and what what it is you want
1: yeah yeah you do and it's it's such a shame because your body is there your body is so much more Complicated than you, in a, in a way. I know yeah. that sounds weird, but like my mind is like, okay, what are my options for breakfast? Is it cereal or is it toast? And my body is like, there's this incredible regulatory system that's yeah. like, okay, you need a bit of potassium and you need this and you need yeah. that. You gotta yeah. to listen to that. It's yeah. it's telling you something.
0: Another thing that you talk about is class in food, which I found very interesting. I first noticed the disparity that is in England when I went to Italy for the first time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I remember I was on a press trip, like a food press trip, and they they were taking a group of journalists. The tour guide was taking a group of journalists around d- different kind of restaurants in a region of Italy and different food suppliers and producers. And we were writing about it. And we had like a driver who would have been just like a totally normal working class man. Mm. And... Every restaurant that we went to, he came in and sat with us mm. and he was telling us all about the dishes. So yeah. even in the fanciest places, he was not alienated from it at all. Yeah, yeah. And this was something I realised was accessible for everyone. It transcended class. Yeah. And it made me realise just just how different it is here.
1: Yeah. I, th- I think part of the the problem here is is not that... I mean, one of the things I hate, this gets wheeled out time and time again by food people, is this idea that poor people don't know how to cook, poor people don't know about food, which is absolutely categorically not true. The problem Mm -hmm. is with the food media who are not interested in those voices. There are so many people that you can go to and you can say, "Okay, I would like you to tell me all about the history of the Lancashire hot pot. And Mm -hmm. they'll tell you the works, they'll tell you all the best places to get it. They know everything about food. Mm But the food media is not interested in those stories. Mm. It's not interested Mm. in that. It's interested in, you know, mainly London-based, usually expensive food trends, Mm. which does leave a lot of people out. Something else that you said, just speaking about kind of accessibility...
0: In the food world as it stands at the moment, it's really difficult for people of colour, especially queer people of colour, to find space. And obviously that has a huge bearing on the ways that we approach or avoid the food scene within our communities. Mm.
1: Can you tell me a bit more about that? I think there's a lot that I think part of it is the fact that... So I've heard this from loads of friends who are people of colour. They say that whenever they are asked to write about food, it's, it's an editor coming to them and saying oh, I've heard your mum's from Pakistan. Can you write about Pakistani food? You know, and they're never allowed to be like, oh, I'm actually a, I'm actually a baker. Like, I want to write about baking. Mm. I'm also this person, you know. Mm. So that's one thing. And also, with regards to queerness, it's a funny thing because, firstly, in restaurants, there is quite often, not always, but often, a terrible, like, homophobic undercurrent running through kitchens. Mm. It's, it's not a particularly good place to be queer. And also within food TV and food writing, we like to see food as this, like, cosy domestic thing. And I think sometimes it's difficult for producers or editors to see where would a queer person fit into this vision of domesticity. I see, I see.
0: I haven't thought about it like that. But that must be very frustrating.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. And, I mean, there are not many... um There are not many queer people in food on TV Mm. that I can think of. And when they are, they're very politely queer, which is Mm. another thing. Yeah,
0: the first person who came to my mind is very much that. And also that, that I'm thinking of Otolenghi, and he also still fits into that domesticity.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: Which is, of course, nothing wrong with that, but it still fits very much into that framework of what we've decided cooking is.
1: yeah. Like, would he he be as accepted and as as, um, praised if he was really camp?
0: Mm, And didn't have children. Yeah. Yeah. In Eat Up, there's a myriad of references. It's very, very well researched and cited. There are lots of different voices in it across history, science, popular culture. And something that I loved is that you referred to Nora Ephron and particularly Heartburn Mm. a lot which is one of my favourite books and she's one of my favourite writers and you mention my favourite scene in Heartburn in which the lead character Rachel after the first night she spends with her soon-to-be husband she takes a kind of steaming pot of spaghetti carbonara over to him and they eat it together in bed and you also more obliquely reference but I, I when I read the sentence I was like I get it, Ruby, when you <laughs> reference throwing a pie, yes. a key lime pie. I'm
1: pleased you saw that. Yes. <laughs> in
0: your husband's face because that's how their relationship in that book begins with food on that first night and it ends with food because yes. she throws pie in his face when she finds out about his infidelity. So Nora's written a lot about all the stages of food in all the stages of love. She's talked about heartbreak and mashed potato even the most famous scene in When Harry Met Sally takes mm-hmm. place in Cat's Diner. Have you found that eating and food is very much interwoven into your memories of love?
1: Um, yeah. I'm I'm very much a um a feeder. Mm. So whenever I have, you know, even wanted to make friends with someone, I've fed them. There's actually a story in the book about uh someone that I lived with, a friend called Catherine for the sakes of the book. I loved that story. It's so funny because it's, it's, I mean, so much of our bonding and falling apart happened over food. Mm. And we still haven't talked for ages. And I don't know why, but I can't get her out of my head. It's just one of those fallings out that just affects you mm. for, for whatever reason. It feels very, um, very important.
0: But in the story, mm. you detail about this kind of, relationship you had that was very much in the kitchen yes
1: yeah we um I think we both really enjoyed cooking and you were students weren't you we, we both were students, students. Yeah, yeah we were just we were sharing a house with a few other friends and uh yeah we both loved cooking and I would always try to feed her to show her like oh, I think you're cool like let's be friends <laughs> and um she was a lot more reserved and she, she didn't like to show too much if she liked someone, if she wanted to be friends with them. So she took loads of food from me and never gave it back. I ended up, as a result, overburdening her and being like, no, take more like when are we can be friends. And it was, it was a complete clash of personalities. It was never going to work. But we, we had some nice moments while we were friends. And you said a lot of the moments you had together were enjoying food together. Yes. Yeah. Every now and again rarely there'd be a moment where we'd actually sit across from the table with each other and we'd talk and when we talked it felt like oh it was magical it's like it sparks you know it was really we had a real connection and we also loathed each other a lot of the time I think. I think as well there's something
0: in I can't speak on behalf of you but I have a friend called Sarah who's a very close friend of mine and I met her when I was just out of the darkest period with my kind of eating stuff Mm. and she loved cooking and she is the best cook that I know and she's a close friend because she's a wonderful woman in so many ways but I also think that she's very tied up for me in recovery right and remembering how to enjoy food again yeah and I think that you especially get that with the domesticity of your first shared house with people yeah
1: Yeah. And do you know what? The other people that I shared the house with, they were a huge part of my recovery because at that point I was still not particularly well Mm. with my disordered eating. And for example, my friend Tessa, she loves cooking more than anyone I've ever known. And she's Swiss and she has this wonderful story about one Christmas. She ate so much fondue that she had to get taken to the doctor's. And she just, like, loves food. And she seems to... I mean, you, you can never really know a person inside out, but she seems to have the healthiest relationship with food of anyone I've yeah, ever known. Yeah. She just... It's a beautiful thing when you see a woman that has that, isn't it? It is. It's And
0: it's actually very rare.
1: Yeah, I really admired it. And yeah. I felt nourished even just being close to her. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I feel the same about Sarah.
1: So what's your view on eating and first dates? Uh, I mean go for it personally I'm quite nervous with these things I don't particularly like eating in front of people so I mean the thought of a first date with food makes me pretty anxious <laughs> but I think uh, if you have the if you have the nerve I think you should go for it because I, I think I it says know. a lot about a person yeah. yeah yeah
0: and also something that you say in the book which is so true is that the reason we get so nervous about eating in front of people, particularly women, I think, get so nervous about men knowing mm. that they eat is that because if men know that they eat, then men know that they have a digestive system. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. Know? And we don't want, men must not know about that. No, no. <laughs> and what do you eat when you're heartbroken? Can you remember the last time you were heartbroken?
1: As I said, Nora mm. Ephron talks
0: about mashed
1: potato. Ice cream is a big one. Mm. I love it. I love it. Ice cream does feature a lot in your book, actually. Yeah, I cannot get enough of ice cream. I'm, I'm like, in love with ice cream. I think it's the most magical thing in the world. (laughs) And what's your favourite kind of ice cream? Okay, you're going to be cross at me. (laughs) And everyone will hate me for this, but vanilla. And here's why. Okay. Because I'm a big fan of, like, seeing understanding like the craft of ice cream right. and if a place has good vanilla it really says a lot i see it's like when you get a margarita pizza that's the kind yeah. of litmus test yeah. for the rest also i know it's boring but i just love the flavor of vanilla i feel yeah. like we we see it as like a um as a ground zero but actually it's a flavor in itself it's delicious mm. and also when you smell a vanilla bean it's really exotic and oh, you know, it's
0: amazing yeah and also vanilla ice cream can then basically just be a vehicle for many different topics
1: yes yeah where do you stand on like soft whip like mr whippy love it yeah i do as well absolutely love it yeah i'm from a seaside town so i'm i'm here with for that yeah
0: (laughs) ruby the first love story
1: that i'd like you to tell me about is your first love right okay Never thought I'd be telling this story in public. Um, so when I was 15, there were there was a French assistant teacher at our school, um, and she was really lovely. And her younger brother was one of the French exchange students. And I wasn't even involved in the French exchange, may I add. I don't know how I managed to muscle my way into the French boys, but I did. <laughs> and... Uh, this boy was called Denis, like Denis. Dennis. It was my first proper boyfriend. And I just, it was so funny because we really couldn't communicate at all. Mm. And so we just went on MSN for many months, just saying, basically, just saying, I love you to each other. <laughs> Did and you then, use Google Translate? Uh, a little bit, but mainly <laughs> we were just like talking over each other. Like we knew not a thing about each other. And he was so French. You know how in French textbooks, they, the, the the children that they use these gar- examples always seem so strange they're always just like oh I like music also climbing I like the cinema with my friends you know it's like really rehearsed he was like that <laughs> he was exactly like that he's like uh, I love music uh, I do uh, kayak and the discotheque and at the weekend, did he practice
0: his sports? He did practice his sports. <laughs> you best believe he did. Maybe they based all those boys <laughs> on him. So how old were you when that happened? I was 15. And so yeah, was 15 he. was my first infatuation. And it is um, the last guest, Cosme Landsman, that we had that that was on the show. He said... Is it first love? Does it count as love when you look back on it and you can see rationally, Mm. this is a boy who I had nothing in common with, who we didn't speak the same language quite literally. Yeah. Was it love? But I I think it counts
1: because at the time, the first feelings you have like that are pretty intense. It is intense. It's so funny. I was was actually thinking about that when I was on my way here today. I was like, am I telling the truth when I say that's my first love because we weren't in love we didn't know each other you know does that count but I was obsessed Mm. and I was heartbroken when I had to wave goodbye off the Mm. (laughs) Eurostar so I mean yeah I guess in a sense it was love and what's so sad is
0: you feel a different depth and intensity of love but I'm pretty certain that the way I felt about that boy at 15 that physical feeling Mm. I don't think I'll ever feel again
1: it is. Do you know what? It's the hormones, isn't it's it? It's hormonal. Exactly. It really it's is. No, I remember that. I remember the feeling and I felt just dizzy all the time. I was mm. like, oh, I can't believe this. And do you know what as well? I think there was something particularly magical about it because even though he was an absolute loser and so was I, it it was before so much absolute rubbish went down between the ages of like 16 and 20 for me just like terrible relationships terrible decision low self-esteem but for some reason at 15 there was this window of just um just being quite naive like a child and also obviously wanting adult things and so it made it such a a perfect thing you know I I met this boy I had sex with this boy and it felt so normal and natural it was before it started to feel sordid and awful yeah so it was very special in that way
0: yeah that's a beautiful way of putting it and you are it is this this prestige of adulthood you feel like you've been allowed into this world of romance but you equally are carrying such an optimistic and carefree heart with it yeah yeah it's uh, that thing that you said about feeling dizzy all the time I tragically used to write a lot of poetry when I was a teenager. <laughs> oh and when I look back on that time with that boy, who I'm you know, like you I'm not even in touch with him anymore, I remember reading about love sickness mm. in, you know, poets that would take to their bed. In, yeah in past time with with a physical ailment yeah. because of being parted from a lover or unrequited love or just infatuation and i remember reading about that at school and thinking it was so you know hysterical and ridiculous mm. and then i remember just feeling the same you know yeah. swooning feeling almost weak with it
1: yeah it's it's absolutely so amazing the way that your feelings can take hold of the whole of you yeah. when you're that age yeah. i hope that it happens You know, it continues to happen as you get older. I I mean, I still have waves of it, but nothing like that constant sickness that I had at 15. But also, thank Christ, though, can you imagine walking around with that? (laughs) Yeah, I was absolutely useless. So it's probably for the best.
0: You and I would never have written a book this year, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) I remember seeing a tweet of yours in Mm -hmm. april 2015 yes let me find it because it made me beam from ear to ear when i first read it you said came out to my parents today feeling lucky and joyful and free over and out and then you did a link to i'm coming out by diana ross you said and to all the bros who hate social media who pit it against real life i never would have had the courage to be me without twitter's queer queens P.S. For those who thought I fancy Paul Hollywood or that I'd ever bang him to get ahead. Joke's on you, you massive shitting misogynists.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what did that moment feel like? I mean, do you know what? I think there's a, I feel weird about that because the when I came out to my parents, it was actually a bit, I mean, it wasn't, I don't think they were particularly surprised. Right. And it wasn't a massive deal for me because I was already going out with Leah, who is my partner now at that point. And uh, I just felt, and my friends knew, and all of that, so it didn't actually feel like that big a deal. And when I tweeted it, it was just a bit of a like throwaway, like, "Yeah, here you go." And it absolutely the tweet just ran away, and mm. it just so many people saw it, and I was like, "Oh shit!" Like this wasn't meant to be a big coming out. This was meant to no, just of be course, a little, of course, observation, but. I'm also sure that
0: even for me, as you know, straight woman, I've I felt very happy to read it, and I'm yeah. sure that it would have been an amazing moment for a lot of young people.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think um, I, I'm obviously I'm um, I'm pleased that I am publicly out. Mm. I think, it, I mean, it, I have nothing to lose by being publicly out, so why not? Mm. But um, yeah, it's a strange one, and also something that I find unsettling is so when I wrote that tweet I'd just I'd been going out with Leah for a few months and it was this like brave new world for me and I was like okay I'm not interested in men that's that's great but actually as I've settled into myself I've realized no I am interested in men I don't need to I think there's this temptation for queer women a lot of the time, because so many women date men as they're growing up, whether or not they grow up to be queer or whatever. And there's this temptation once you start to be with women to say, don't worry, I was never with men. I was yeah. never tainted. Yeah, I, I never wanted that. But actually, like, I'm bisexual. Like, I like men and I like women. And so looking back now, I wish I hadn't said the poor Hollywood thing, because as much as I would absolutely not touch him with a barge pole, it wasn't because I was queer yes yes of course
0: yeah yeah but i understand what your point was that you were trying to make yeah. was that it was so frustrating that just because you were a young woman yeah. and he was an older man that that was the only route to success that people yeah. could apply to it was that narrative which is I- incredibly patronizing and offensive
1: yeah. and it's shocking that it took me saying that i was queer for people to actually take me at my words and believe you yeah, yeah that's awful yeah I think it's particularly difficult with these things for... We're entering a time when it seems like more and more people are queer than ever before. Like there yeah. was some survey of teenagers and like over 50% were not straight, which is, you know, exciting. Yeah, And yeah. I, I look forward to that absolute normality of queerness. I think it's a good thing. And the fact
0: that we're now in a time where it doesn't mean, as you said, that it's an absolute... Yes, Of you can be three things.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, you even get it from, and it's really sad that it is this way, but even from people who should know better, I remember I was talking to my therapist who, for the record, I thought was wonderful, Mm -hmm. but she said something, we'd been seeing each other for ages and I hadn't like defined myself, my sexuality in any way. I just had said that I was with Leah. And she said, Oh, so, you know, as a gay woman you this or that and I was I just instantly froze. I was like, I'm I never said I was gay. I'm not I, I'm yeah. not gay, you yeah, know, and she just yeah. assumes that. So I mean, I'm looking forward to a time when people are just like they 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 don't assume you're you're straight or you're gay, or maybe if they're super like cool and on it, maybe you're bisexual, you know? It, it's so much more fluid than that.
0: Yeah, it's hard with the therapist thing as well because something that I've noticed with therapists is for people that are so open-minded about the myriad ways that a human condition can manifest and how mm. to live a life, they're not very woke, a lot of them.
1: They're not. Do you know what? Leah is training to be a counsellor. Yeah, She's in training at the moment and she has found that lots with the stuff she's been reading online yeah. and you know various like events she's engaged with that people don't have a clue they mm. don't and they're very they're kind people their hearts are there but they're not woke not in the slightest and i wonder how much of it is that so many therapists
0: traditional therapists talking therapy that you go to will mm. either be freudian or jungian or whatever mm. and while obviously i'm not going to sit here and like slag off freud or discount him <laughs> while that is still like fundamental and very prevalent yeah that is that, is, that was written in a very different time, you know, that, that it doesn't maybe encompass the environmental factors of a modern world.
1: No, no. I mean, it, it doesn't. And that you cannot... I, I understand that traditionally a therapist's job is to see the person in front of them and only the person in front of them. But there's no such thing as detaching a person from society. You're always going to see this web of connections that this person embodies. Yes, You're always going to they're going to bring some society into the room with them and you're going to bring some society into the room with you as a therapist. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I think there's this really wrong idea that a therapist should be a blank slate and that a blank slate equals a middle-class white woman. That's the default. Yes. Yeah.
0: So it's tricky.
1: I'd like you to now tell me a story of unrequited love. Okay. Um, it's time to go back to my roots for this one. Okay, good. Um, so I'm an Essex girl and I'm from Southend and it's right at the end of the Thames. It's where the Thames kind of like burps its way out into the sea. (laughs) And my unrequited love is Southend Seafront. Oh, really? I love it. And it's unrequited because I give it my love and I see with the poetry in it and it just gives me like washed up condoms and it's for <laughs> scum, you know, it's um, I love it, though. I really do. And when I'm there and I can breathe the sea air and see those beer cans on the beach, I just feel home. You yeah. Know? And would you do you feel like a kind of spiritual
0: calling there? Would you ever hope to end up back there?
1: I really I really feel the pull and I've not yeah. been back in a long time and I miss it yeah. like in my heart in a way that I didn't know that um, until I left, I didn't know I would feel that way about it. But yeah, I, I feel, I guess it's homesickness. Yeah.
0: Yeah, totally. It's, it's, it's something that I realised in my 20s is that you have all these dreams of these new places, these new lands you're going to be and you can visit and be a new person and yeah. actually... What makes a place is very rarely the beer cans or the bricks. It's it's a kingdom of memories. Yes, yeah, know, it and, is. And, and familiarity and love and relationships.
1: Yeah. One thing that I always notice, and I hate myself for feeling this way, but I can't help it. So I'll go away on a holiday and I'll explore somewhere fantastic and I'll be like, okay, I'm going to move here. And the second I get back into the airport on British soil, I'll see a WH Smiths and I'll just feel like, oh, yeah here we are you know it's exactly the same it's so sad but sometimes you just need familiarity you just need to know where you stand i hate that about myself as well actually my friend sophie always takes the piss out of me for
0: being like it's not even like i don't like patriotism i find really embarrassing yeah but englishness and england and toffee crisps and wh smith and you know, post boxes. It is in my blood and I think I did used to feel more embarrassed about that than now and my friend Sophie would like often send me video clips of being like, oh, saw you earlier and it would be like a Morris dancer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like feeling that English but it's in my blood. It's for some reason.
1: Yeah. It's,
0: it's and I miss, when I'm away from England, I miss English people. I miss English humour. I miss London humour.
1: Yeah, yeah. And do you know what, like, I think of course we feel this way of course we do like I mean we, we're we forged in the, this little crucible of the you know it's the town we live in and then the county and the country and all of these things play into that and maybe because of the internet and because this is such a global age we're we're made to feel like you should be able to be yourself anywhere. You should be able to just yeah. be an individual, like yeah. this little unit, and you can go anywhere and be that person anytime. But and you're your own universe. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. That's not who we are. No, we we you're have right. roots, whether we like it or not. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. Before we move on to
0: your next love story, which is the story of passionate love, I wanted to speak more generally about passion. Yes. Because you seem to me to be a fairly passionate person. Mm. You use your platform and your celebrity in a very thoughtful way. You're not afraid to call out bullshit. You're not afraid to call out injustice or wrongdoings. Have you always been like that?
1: I I think the internet has been a gift to me because I would I would rather die than tell someone they've cut into a queue in front of me. Like I I cannot be assertive in my real life. So the internet has been, like, this wonderful excuse for me to just channel all the anger that I have. Yeah. Um, I was surprised when I read that. I read that in an interview
0: with you, and you said, I just i am not a confrontational person at all.
1: No, I can't. I just, yeah, I'm not. (laughs) I don't like it. Um, I would like to be more assertive in real life, for sure. But definitely, like, in the past, I would have all these frustrations and I just turned them inwards. That's just what like teenagers do, right? You know, you you just decide you hate yourself, you hate the world, but you're not going to confront the world, you just stay in your room. Um, but now, I do feel a lot healthier for just venting and getting yeah. that out.
0: And you would it be fair to say that you've had some sort of, like some kind of Twitter feuds? Yes. Yes, for sure. Yes. <laughs> and... Truthfully, I'd like to know how you feel about that. I remember reading; um, I think it's an interview with Julie Birchall. It was some sort of it was some sort of a op- very opinionated journalist. Right. Who I know, I'm not comparing you to, but someone who has a lot of public feuds. Yeah. And she said that she gets a kind of rush from it.
1: Right. Okay. Is that something you feel as well, or is it more of a relief? It's definitely. I wouldn't say it was a rush because it makes me feel ill like it makes me just feel sick with stress and nerves yeah but I don't know sometimes people oh god this is something that um you know like family friends will say to me they'll be like oh have you been in any fights recently it's not a hobby that like fighting on twitter <laughs> is not my pastime like
0: but also it's not your job you're a very busy woman <laughs> yeah
1: like I I do it I I do it when there's something I disagree with. I, yeah. I don't just think, like, who am I going to pick a fight with today? Not by any stretch. And most of my Twitter timeline is full of just, like, people saying, like, oh, my God, I love you. No, I love you. You know, like, it's overwhelmingly positive. And every now and again, I'll see something that really ticks me off. Yeah. And then I say something. So what makes you angry?
0: Is there anything specific that
1: makes you want
0: to, to speak out?
1: Um, for the most part, I mean, I tend to stick to the the industry that I know because that's, I mean, that's all I can really speak about. So it's food stuff and it's food people just being, oh, people just shitting on other people from a great height is mm. rubbish. I, I hate how snobby the food world is. Mm. I hate the classism. I hate the fact that people make a fortune traveling all over the world and talking about people from different cultures as though they're strange and weird like oh my god we found this weird things that people in korea eat aren't they weird no it's not weird we're weird yeah you know so and i just it's it's because i want the food because i I love food and i Mm. want so many people to be able to be chefs and food writers and i want it to be a much fairer world for food people
0: yeah i think my favorite thing that you've ever tweeted in fact i loved it so much that last year i i screenshotted it and put it on instagram (laughs) was a Woman from Good Morning Britain, Oh God! It was a researcher, I think, or a producer, who oh, tweeted God, yeah. you and said, would you like to come on and debate something? And you replied saying, hi, Charlotte, I know it's just your job, so no hard feelings, but Piers Morgan is a sentient ham
1: and frankly, I'd rather die. <laughs> I genuinely would have rather died.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I just love that so much because it was this like delicious mix of like total politeness mm.
1: <laughs> and also saying what every person feels yeah yeah I mean I, I don't want to engage with these people like I've I've heard so many stories about so many obviously like everyone knows that Piers Morgan is a bit of an ass but or a lot of an ass but there are lots of stories I've heard about other people like food people and that. and I'm just like you know I'm not going to work with you I'm not going to Oh, I mean, in many ways, it makes me a terrible business person. There's so much networking I've not done because I just can't stand the sight of people. Mm. But mm. You've, you've got to live with yourself at the end of the day.
0: Yeah. And also, I think when you work very hard at that integrity, I think, fine, you may not yield the quickest, the most instant riches, but it's a great thing long term. Yeah. I think it will, it serves people very well in terms of long term authenticity and people then responding well to them
1: yeah hopefully <laughs> can you now tell me a story of passionate love okay i need to preface this with by passionate love here i do not mean that i want to shag this person <laughs> <laughs> um, not by any stretch um so my passionate love is like nigel slater but it's passionate in the sense that I love him. I cannot not love him. I actually had a dream once. Which I really shouldn't just be saying this, but I had a dream once that we were walking along the road together and he was like, don't worry, we'll get some hot chocolate. And then he let me rest his, my, my head on his shoulder. Oh, Ruby. It was so tender. It was so (laughs) lovely.
0: But but he is so tender as well. He is like, I remember watching one of his programs where he, you know, he kind of potters out to his little vegetable garden. Yeah. And he was talking about lettuce and how calming and soothing lettuce is, particularly when it's cooked lettuce. And on one hand, my initial reaction is like, oh, Nigel Slater, you're so like balm for the soul. Yeah. And then there's this aftertaste of like, a man like, basically reading a poem aloud about letters yeah
1: I mean and that's why it's that's why it's passionate for me because I love him and I also loathe him (laughs) I really do like I, I I've got his books I read them and I'm always delighted to follow whatever he's doing but also he I mean Jesus Christ he's just a uh, a man food bore he really is he's a bit fey isn't he he can be a bit fey about food a little food. bit yeah, yeah. And, but you know what there must be something to like there because I come back again and again and again and what's your favourite of his cookbooks oh actually and this isn't necessarily because it's the best one but just because it's the ones that I grew up with um, real food Mm. Mm. Because he's got some heinous recipe in there for like fried ice cream and a whole potato section and whole garlic section. And I remember looking through that as a kid and being like, I can't believe you just get to write about food you like. Like, yeah. I like jelly babies. Can I write about that? I thought it was amazing.
0: But he also, for anyone who isn't familiar with Nigel Slater and his style of cooking, something that I think is so lovely about it is that he really hones in on often very simple things yeah and will focus on why it's so delicious or beautiful or how to use it seasonally and i remember reading something he'd written about leeks
1: mm.
0: in this Forensic detail yes. about why why leeks are so yeah. wonderful, and as you said, that's a very delicate balance of loving and loathing. Yes, when yeah. it <laughs> gets that detailed, but then I just had last year this love affair with leeks, mm. and I'd cook just like I'd have like a bowl of pasta with just cream and sautéed leeks. Oh my god, that's and pepper, the right. yeah. yeah. And but it was completely ignited. Why would I have ever been thinking about leeks so much? Yeah. It was completely ignited by the the language that he used. Yeah, and that is
1: kind of amazing i think it is he i think he does really inspire a lot of people to just take pleasure in food which i think is a really valuable thing especially when so many cookbooks are so devoid of pleasure Mm. so i am grateful for his influence and he really as well is the
0: poster boy for that section of the book that you subtitled relish Mm you know he yeah. really relishes and it's often as they said incredibly simple things yeah. that he really relishes and celebrates yes
1: yeah for sure and it's i think the part of my um complex relationship with his writing is the the preciousness of it all yeah yeah so yeah. for example like he'll write about how he loves potatoes and i'm i'm on board and i'm thinking oh i love potatoes too like great <laughs> and then he'll say And really the best ones to get are the ones that are grown in the spring just as the tender sprouts are coming up through the soil and you'll go to a local farmer's market and just really pick a potato up in your hand. And, you know, it'll go on for so long that I'm like, by the end of it, I'm like, I don't want my chips anymore. You've put me off, Nigel. Yeah, totally. It's just a potato. Yeah,
0: Yeah, it's so funny, that foodiness, isn't it? Because I was talking to my friend's boyfriend about this the other day and he um, manages a restaurant Mm. and he says... He's like, look, I love food and I love talking about food. But you do get to a point where all the fun is taken out of it. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: And <laughs> it's talked about in that way, in such a reverential, precious yes, way. Yes,
1: exactly. It is it's the it is the reverential bit of it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, because I could listen to someone talk all day long about their nans Yorkshires if they're mm. it, like just excited by it. It's excitement that you want and not yeah. like... The reason why they're so special is the provenance of the flower. You know, like, I'm yeah. not interested in that. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if Nigel Slate is listening. Well, let's hope not. Sorry,
0: Dad. <laughs> no, if he is, then I think you two should organise a hot chocolate and a long walk. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to do a quick fire round of questions
1: about love. Biggest celebrity crush? <sighs> Bettany, specifically as the unabomber i'm sorry <laughs> i thought you were gonna say harry styles no not anymore i've oh. done a u-turn on that i'm afraid really yeah Okay, Paul Bettany is. Wait, I need to come back to this Paul Bettany thing. I'm worried that people are going to think that he is my celebrity crush, which is absolutely categorically not true because I only fancy him when he's emaciated and like a forest creature as the Unabomber. Okay. It's a very specific one. Let me think of a more Okay, like, so that can be your, your
0: niche. Yeah, and then now the multi-purpose crush. Oh
1: god. Oh, Paul Rudd. Paul really? Paul Rudd. Yes. The kindest man in the world. So lovely, so unaging. Love him. Very
0: unaging, actually.
1: Yeah. And wholesome. Yeah. I absolutely
0: love him. I could marry him tomorrow. I would not have predicted that, but Paul Ruddit is with Paul Bettany as the backup. Yes. <laughs> what do you think the best love song of all time
1: is? Carly Ray Jepson. Cut to the feeling. Best romantic movie? Oh, um,. The
0: Way We Were. Oh, I love that film. I love Barbara so much. It's a, it's a funny coincidence that you should mention that because I was trying to learn the chords on my guitar last night to The Way We Were. Really? Yeah, it's actually really difficult to play. But it's also, um, you find yourself when you sing along with that, you do the Barbara vibrato. There's no way of singing yeah. it without the Barbara <laughs> phrasing and the kind of... Yeah. God, it's a it's a heartbreaking film, that film. She's so wonderful. It's great, isn't it? Oh, I'm Robert Redford. Yeah. Maybe Robert Redford would be mine. Really? Maybe. Interesting. Mm. But it's so sad, that story. It's like a modern-day Romeo and Juliet, isn't it, that yeah, story? Yeah,
1: it is. I think that's the reason why it's so romantic, because it's so real and it's so... You know, it's just people just missing each other. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and I think a lot of people carry a story like that with them mm.
0: a story of longing of in another life
1: yeah with yeah. that
0: person if things had been slightly different i yeah. think a lot of people carry that and it's um yeah it's a very sad, sad part of being human i think that longing yeah because so much of
1: love is about luck yes
0: and time absolutely you know yeah. which leads us on to your final love story which okay. is a story of everlasting love
1: Everlasting love. Um, I thought I couldn't come on a thing all about love and not talk about Leah, <laughs> who is uh, my partner, and actually later this year we're getting married. <gasps> Congratulations! Thank you. I'm telling as many people as possible because I keep forgetting that we have to organise it. So I <laughs> so figure, like the more I spread now. the words, no, yeah, I'm going to have to get on it.
0: Well, that was one of my questions because I've read you say before that you'd love to get married with a few friends and family. Obviously, you mentioned some ice cream in a burger van. Oh, yeah. Have you started doing any planning at all?
1: We literally, a couple of days ago booked a community hall for the reception which is an absolute shambolic place I can't wait to do the reception there I could never do it somewhere like pristine anyway it's just not me so no but that's great as well because hopefully in that setting you'll be able to make it entirely yours yeah I just want everyone to have a lovely time and I've already decided that for the wedding cake I want a few trays of you know the little rectangles of carrot cake they sell in bakeries like old style bakeries yes and they've got the little carrot on top yes I want a huge tray of that that's what I want well then you should do Shit. that's what i think
0: i really think one of the most joyful weddings I ever went to was my friend alex's wedding and her wedding breakfast was a buffet it was in brooklyn her husband's texan okay it was a buffet of fried chicken mac and cheese oh kale salad and then instead of a wedding cake she have they got their favorite bakery to just lay on all their favorite pies
1: yes and it was yes, so perfect. fun and relaxed yeah that's exactly what you need yeah. and how did you decide to get married to you two um oh god, you're gonna hate this and everyone's gonna hate me for it. Here we go. So I I knew that I wanted to to propose to, to right. Leah and um I w- I didn't really know when. And then one evening, uh, like a year and a bit ago we were just watching TV and I'm so sorry to say that what was on TV at the time was Love Actually. Now, that's not why I proposed to her. I need to make that perfectly clear, but that's what was on TV. Because
0: Love was actually all around. What it
1: turns out, yeah. And she was in a mood, actually. She was in a bit of a huff and I was like, oh God, like, maybe I can't do it. And I was like, no, but I've decided to now, so I just have to do it. So, so I proposed to her and she, at first she was like, huh? And then she realised that she couldn't be in a half anymore, and obviously she was delighted. So, oh, I love that story. Yeah. Started she mean to go on one of you in a half, both of you in pyjamas. So that's it. And how did you meet Leah? Um, actually on Tinder. Did you? But we had lots of mutual friends, and we knew who each other was to start with. But Tinder was like the spark. I think it's so great for you to be honest about that because. I so many
0: couples I know now met through Tinder. Really? Yes, so many. Some are getting married. Some are are already married. Some are living together. And I have a real bee in my bonnet about couples who meet on Tinder who aren't honest about it because I think oh people lie all the time. And I I actually really have an issue with it because I feel like for all of my twenties, there's this myth pushed about men sending drinks across the bar to you with, like, a note on the napkin (laughs) or, you know, boys chatting you up at parties or, like, all this love happening everywhere. People sitting next to each other on a plane. Like, you know, this perfect meet cute, And it just wasn't happening for me. And it made me feel really like I was doing something wrong because I just wasn't finding this love. So I don't like when people are dishonest about it because it is a really good way of meeting people and connecting. And I think the more people... Say, I met
1: the love of my life through this app. Yeah. The more destigmatized it becomes. Yeah. I think it's a wonderful thing. And, do you know, I went on a few tins dates, not actually many at all, but every one of them was a nice experience. Yeah. And, um you know, I was lucky not to have any like major nightmare dates from that. Most of the time it was just, I, I learned something, even if I just learned like, don't wear that top on dates, it's see through, you know? It was valuable. Yeah. Or I will
0: never have anything in common with a banker. Yes. As I I finally
1: learned. And what is it about Leah that you fell in love with? She, I think it's the fact that wherever she goes, whoever she makes friends with, she is just loved by them. Mm. She's absolutely loved by people. And it's because she's so funny and she's so kind. And she has this way of listening to you that makes you feel like you're really being heard. And I saw the effect that she had on other people and I was like, oh Jesus, like I've got a chance to have this for me. Like I I want that. Of course Mm. I want that. And how do you kind of
0: complement and clash each other as personalities?
1: I think we're very, we have very similar styles of living, which I think is actually really important. Like we're similar levels of messy slash tidy. Yeah. Which is good. And we we love the same stuff. We both love watching shit TV. Like recently we've been watching one called In Therapy, which is terribly exploitative, but which I love. (laughs) Um, The ways in which we clash, I think perhaps the worst thing about us is that when we're together, we regress. I think we just want to have too much fun, and it's quite often we end up like children, just like watching the same stuff over and over again, and like saying stupid shit to each other, and like talking to each other in song lyrics and that which is pathetic from start to finish so that's probably the worst thing about our relationship do you know what though i think you're just being honest about that i have always felt like every couple
0: behind closed doors has their own mythology they have their own language they have their own rituals yeah they have their own ways in which they develop or digress together
1: yeah yeah i mean i guess so to be honest and i mean to be honest i i love being ridiculous with her yeah i love being ridiculous with her and quite often i think if people could hear us as we are right now they would be mortified for us they'd be like what is going on in there why are they just saying the same word to each other in different voices until <laughs> they fall down laughing like that's ridiculous yeah but also the last guest that i
0: had on this podcast who's been married twice and is in his 60s and he said and his parents had a very long and successful marriage and he said one of the keys to love is to make life fun for each other yeah he said it's it's so simple but it's so easily forgotten yeah when you cohabit or if you have a family together or if you work together or if you've just been together for a long time yeah to remember to get a kick out of each other's company
1: yeah that's very fair yeah
0: Well, that sounds like it will be an everlasting love.
1: Oh, I bloody hope so.
0: (laughs) Ruby Tando, thank you so much for telling me your love stories. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Love Stories. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes to give the series a boost and help others find it. And you can buy my book, Everything I Know About Love, published by Fig Tree, in Waterstones, on Amazon or in all good bookshops. Or buy the audiobook on Audible. Love Stories is recorded in the Penguin Studio in London. The music was composed and recorded by Lauren Benstead. Tune in next week when another guest will be telling me their love stories.